My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one is you can go and write a review on iTunes, or number two, you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Robert Steele. Robert Steele is not only the author of the Open Source Everything Manifesto, but he's also a former spy and CIA intelligence professional, Marine Corps infantry officer, honorary hacker, past presidential candidate, and the top Amazon reviewer devoted to nonfiction uh, in 98 categories who has done more than 1,700 book reviews. So, hi, Robert. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Fantastic. So, Robert, uh, I introduced you in a kind of a very impressive paragraph, but if I were to ask you to put yourself in a sentence or two, how would you best do that yourself? Lived all over the world, um, had a great many experiences, and I am just stunned that as a human race, we're not doing better. Ha, huh. interesting. We're not doing better. So let me ask you then, do we, would you say that in, in your view, we are making progress or we are making regress? Are we going forward or backwards? You know, the, the, the answer is always some of each. Uh, we've certainly made progress in poverty and infectious disease and a few other areas but we've also managed to destroy the world in the last 15 years. We've gone from 25 failed states to 175 failed states. The policies of the U.S. neoconservative government, not just under the Bush-Cheney administration, but under Obama-Biden, have essentially destabilized uh, the world. Uh, Europe is suffering uh, 2 million illegal immigrants, and I predicted this in my second book in 2002. I basically said, if you don't take care of the poor, the poor will come to you. Ah, this is fascinating. And there's so many things I want to grab. So, and I don't even know which one to get first. But let me ask you this. You said 175 failed states. Can you please give us, a, elaborate on that a little more? Because Well, I don't have the graphic in front of me. But, but if you look it up, just look up the number of failed states. My point is that the United States government has chosen to be the best friend of dictators rather than a champion of democracy. And so, for example, in Saudi Arabia, which has an unemployment rate of 29% among its, its young, uh, we have chosen to allow Saudi Arabia to export terrorism in the form of Wahhabism. We've uh, asked Saudi Arabia to create ISIS as a way of bringing down Syria, which is a totally unnecessary destabilization effort. Uh, and we are just generally allowing some very bad things to happen. For example, in the Ukraine, we supported a neo-Nazi fascist takeover uh, and the division of the country. Uh, we've supported a number of color revolutions, all inherently aimed at Russia, rather than at improving the lives of the people in those countries. Wow, you're already blowing my mind here in the first uh, couple of minutes. So let me let me grab just one point. You said Saudi Arabia created ISIS. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, if you if you look up online who created ISIS, 
you'll find out that ISIS was in fact created out of the Libyan intervention, which was started by the French, but exaggerated by the Americans. And CIA wanted to create a form of jihadist force such as they created for Afghanistan. And their focus was on destabilizing and ultimately kicking Assad out of power. Assad has long been a Soviet client. Some people call him a Soviet agent. Uh, I personally think he's simply the guy in charge of the country, and we have no business uh, trying to kick him out of office. I'm totally opposed to the American uh, penchant for regime change. It should not be our business to change regimes. It should be our business to foster peace and prosperity. Well, okay. As a former political science student myself, uh, you know, those are all very interesting and and very deep and profound and and important, uh, vitally important topics. But I'm going to have to actually pass on on that and and move on to the topic that that I would like to focus on today, which is uh, kind of, in a way, maybe arguably even more important than, than, than these particularities. So, Let me ask you this. What is the open source everything manifesto about? Well, one of the things I started, I started the open source intelligence revolution in the 1980s. And as a spy, I realized one day how little we knew because we were focusing only on on stealing secrets. And so I did an inventory of what could be known using open legal ethical methods. And it turned out that the US government, because it relies only on secrets, is working with roughly 2% of the available information. It hasn't put into place a vehicle for actually reaching out in 183 languages to collect local knowledge and expert wisdom in languages we don't speak from people we don't talk to. And so I created the open source intelligence revolution, and my soundbite at the time was, do not send a spy where a schoolboy can go. Then I discovered the open source software and open source hardware revolutions, led by, among others, uh, uh, the free software guy. uh, Yes, exactly, RMS, uh, whom I admire very much. After looking at open source software and open source hardware, I realized that they really weren't worth much unless they also had open access, open data, and open spectrum. And so then I started to create a typology of opens. And in 2007, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at Gnomedex in Seattle. And so I did a briefing on open source everything. And I identified about 30 opens. And then around 2011, I decided to write the book, The Open Source Everything Manifesto, and I was able to list 60 opens. Then, after I published the book and I got some attention, and The Guardian did a profile of me in 2014 by Nafiz Ahmed, then I realized that the opens were chaotic. They were an archipelago. They weren't talking to each other. They weren't collaborating with each other. So I worked with Mikhail Bowens from the Peer-to-Peer Foundation and Marcin Jakubowski from Open Source Ecology. And we created a construct of nine core opens. And within those nine core opens, we picked three sub-opens for each. Uh, And our hope is that eventually we will get all of the opens to work together. 
<clears throat> and create smart cities that are not just on broadband, but smart cities that eliminate all waste. Uh, Melissa Sterry is one of the uh, wonderful people that I listen to and pay attention to. Uh, she talks about a bionic city and what would a city look like if nature designed it. If nature designed a city, it would have no fraud, waste, or abuse. It would have no agricultural waste. It would have no energy waste. It would have no waste of materials in housing and, and office construction. It would have no waste in water. We have systems, even if India builds smart cities, they're about to build 20 smart cities and they're making a huge mistake because they're defining their smart city as solely and exclusively centered on having broadband access. That's not a smart city. That's a dumb city with access. I have to agree with that part, part on India and, and what smart city entails would be much broader and bigger and deeper and more profound than just broadband. But uh, let me push a little bit back on what you said. If nature designed the city, it would have no fraud, waste or abuse. I mean, when I look at nature, I see what Thomas Hobbes called life being nasty, brutish, and short, and often violent. So we have usually the stronger killing the weak uh, and, and the old being killed by the young, etc., etc. So in a, in a way, maybe you could say that there is no waste in nature because everything is being recycled and reused. But I would certainly would say that it doesn't lack any abuse or suffering or violence, but actually all of those are abundant in my view. Well, I take a more positive view. And what I'm really thinking about in relation to nature is energy and entropy. I'm not thinking about the violence and, and you know, you're, you're absolutely correct. But the bottom line for me is that we design things that are very, very wasteful. For example, London right now is trying to create a smart city and an internet of things. And they're doing absolutely nothing to get rid of all of those ugly highways. They're doing nothing to reduce the dependence on petrol-driven vehicles. They're doing nothing to create bicycle and pedestrian access. So that's not a smart city at all. That's a city, and this is IBM's problem, that's a city in which you're retrofitting gee whiz technologies for communications to really absurd, wasteful, legacy, industrial era artifacts. A smart city would actually be a small city. It would be a city in which agriculture is integrated into every neighborhood. It would be a city in which you can walk to work. It would be a city in which all of the jobs were actually worth doing. It would be a city in which the arts and the humanities would be present on every level and in every neighborhood. So for me, we haven't had the conversation about what a smart city really is. And this article that I have done for you on, on human intelligence and open source technologies is perhaps the beginning of that conversation. Uh, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed your article and I'm just about to publish it. So it would actually be published by the time we publish the, the final edit of this interview. Uh, so people will be able to check it out. Uh, and I have to say, as a cyclist myself, uh, and as someone who is very concerned and interested in sustainability and, and not wasting things, I totally agree with you on the idea of smart city. But you know what? Allow me to please roll back the, ta the tape 
and start at the beginning because there is a kind of a seeming paradox between your background and what you're saying. So I want you to lead us through the story of what led you to be where you are because <clears throat> basically uh, you in your book even you say that in the 1980s you were a Republican, Re Reaganite, believer in trickle-down economics I was wrong. I have repented my sins. <laughs> okay, but but the question then is why and how? Well, oh, let me tell you the story. That's a very, very big shift. I grew up as the son of an oil man. I went into the Marine Corps as an infantry officer, and then from the Marine Corps, the CIA came in and pulled me out, and I became a clandestine service case officer. Now, the Marine Corps and the CIA are inherently conservative organizations that do not question authority. Uh, they basically obey orders and do what they're told to do. In 1988, I was asked by the Marine Corps to leave the CIA and become the senior civilian responsible for creating the Marine Corps Intelligence Center. And I did that. And I spent $20 million on very secret equipment to access all secret information. And in one little corner, I had a PC connected to the internet. And back in 1988, the internet was something called the source. That was the Google of its time. Well, imagine my surprise when all of my analysts started lining up for the PC. And I went to them and I said, I've just spent $20 million so you can access everything that NSA and CIA knows, and you're standing in line for a PC? And they said, yes, because CIA and NSA don't know anything about Burundi, Haiti, or Somalia. They only know things about the Soviet Union and China and North Korea and Iran. That was my awakening. That was when I realized that we had a Cold War government with Cold War institutions that were focused obsessively on a few heavy targets like Russia and China and were ignoring the entire rest of the world. So I started the open source intelligence revolution. And in fact, I testified to the Aspen Brown Commission uh, and they asked me to do a competition of me and my phone against a $60 billion a year intelligence community. And I won. They set the target as Burundi and they asked me to get whatever I could on Burundi overnight. It was over a weekend actually. And they asked the entire U.S. intelligence community to provide everything they had on Burundi. They had nothing on Burundi. Nobody cares about Burundi, but Burundi is where the Marine Corps goes. I was able to produce one to 50,000 Russian combat charts, maps for Burundi, French imagery, spot imagery of Burundi, cloud-free, less than four years old, in the archives at the one to 50 level, Uh, Jane's information group, my friend Alfred Rollington, called in an analyst for the weekend, and he created an order of battle for the tribes, not just the army. The U.S. intelligence community only does armies that wear uniforms. They don't do tribal orders of battle. I was able to get from the Institute of Scientific Information the top 100 academics writing on Burundi and Rwanda. From LexisNexis, I got the top journalists writing on Burundi and Rwanda. 
and I don't care what they've written. I just want them for debriefing. Um, and from Oxford Analytica, I got the last 20 reports they had done on the geopolitical implications of genocide in Burundi and Rwanda. With five or six phone calls in one day, I was able to put together more on Burundi than the entire U.S. secret intelligence community in the last 10 years because I knew who knew, and I was able to reach out in the open source world, and I was able to pull this together, okay? So that was my, that was my awakening, and that's when I started to realize that the U.S. government was actually a military-industrial complex that exists to spend money to enrich the few. It's not actually focused on furthering democracy or creating prosperity for the average American. And what, what year was that again when you... 1988. I see. In 1989, I ghost wrote an article for General Al Gray in which I talked about emerging threats as being non-state actors with off-the-shelf weapons, with no order of battle, with no rules of engagement, precisely what ISIS is today. And the Marine Corps tried to get the U.S. government to invest money in preparing to go against ISIS-like capabilities, and everybody refused. Today, we spend 1% on the infantry. The other 99% is spent on very heavy, expensive things that don't do what they're supposed to do. And it turns out that the U.S. government, the U.S. military is in the business of building really, really expensive things that enrich a few corporations but don't actually do anything to reduce the number of amputees and dead and wounded and suicides that we have. Like, we yeah, do not have a human-centric military. We have a military that exists for Lockheed Martin's convenience. Yeah, and the F-35 is a good example. Absolutely. In fact, the F-35 is killing pilots because nobody thought about the fact that the chemicals that are associated with the stealth covering would bleed into the cockpit and kill pilots. Wow, we, I didn't even know that. Yeah, we, we are creating a lot of garbage. And oh, by the way, the Air Force doesn't know how to run secure satellites. So now all of the Navy captains are learning celestial navigation. Uh, and the Army officers are trying to figure out how they're going to know where they are when the GPS goes out. You shut down the GPS and the U.S. military grinds to a halt. And that's when I also started getting interested in redundancy and sustainability and survivability. And I essentially realized that we have a government that is spending a lot of money creating things that don't actually produce peace or prosperity. Wow. And, and I mean, again, very dense answer with lots of good topics there. So let me see if I can sort of lead the way to sort of reveal your thesis in hopefully the, the most conducive way possible. So tell us. Perhaps the next step will be best if we discuss sort of the dichotomy or the tension or the opposition, if you will, between secrecy on the one hand and open source on the other hand, because they do seem to be mutually exclusive. So we, we did already see your background, your sort of aha moment, uh, your kind of amazing competition against the whole of the intelligence community uh, gathering knowledge on Burundi, which you won over the weekend. So now, Talk to us about the shift from secrecy into open source, and how is that reasonable or, or the best way forward? 
first, let's let's go back to the beginning of the U.S. secret intelligence community. People are only now starting to realize that Alan Dulles was a traitor. Alan Dulles went against Eisenhower and against Kennedy, and he single-handedly rescued the Nazi regime and much of the wealth of the Nazi regime. Alan Dulles helped Nazis escape justice. He imported thousands of Nazis, not just scientists, but leaders and people that had run death camps and so forth. Um, we also captured all of the gold in the Philippines that the Japanese had taken from China and elsewhere, and then they buried in the Philippines when our submarines were interrupting the return of the gold to Japan. That gold, it's a, it's a story that's told in a book called Gold Warriors by Peggy and Sterling Seagraves. That gold became the Black Lily Covert Action Fund. And Alice, Alan Dulles used that fund to restore fascists in Italy, Japan, and Germany. And it became you. What's that? Guatemala, perhaps. Also, we love fascists. We love, we love fascists in Indonesia as well. Essentially, CIA became a, something that Harry Truman never, ever anticipated. And Harry Truman himself wrote a letter in the Washington Post in 1968 that said that he had never intended for CIA to become a covert operations organization. But it was able to use secrecy under Alan Dulles to escape accountability. I have testified to the Secrecy Commission of, Sen of, Sen of uh, Senator Patrick Moynihan, and I testified to the effect that secrecy nine times out of 10 is not used for good reasons. It's used to avoid accountability and it's used to do evil in our name without being discovered. Now, openness is actually important because openness is subject to audit. One of the problems with the secret community is that it believes in what are called bilateral relations. So for example, the Americans will meet with the Germans one-on-one, -on -one, then they'll meet with the French one-on-one, -on -one, then they'll meet with the Jordanians one-on-one. -on -one. And what happens is the two governments lie to each other. But because there's no third party present, there's no real quality control. Now the neat thing about the openness environment is that it's multinational. And not only is it multinational, but you have eight tribes. I call these eight tribes of information. Uh, the academic tribe, the civil society tribe, which includes labor unions and religions. The commerce tribe, which is especially uh, small business. Government, especially local. Law enforcement, media, military, media including bloggers like yourself. And then um, military and non-governmental. Now, I did my, set, my first graduate thesis on predicting revolution. My second graduate thesis was on strategic information management. And what I discovered was that the government is essentially operating on 2% of the relevant information. Most of the information that we need in order to make good decisions is known to people who haven't put it online, don't speak English, don't have security clearances, and generally don't like the U.S. government. But because of the way in which we're structured, if you look at a typical embassy overseas, the diplomats are outnumbered by all the other people from other agencies that don't trust the Department of State to do it right. The embassy officers don't have money with which to buy legal ethical information from private investigators or investigative journalists or information brokers or commercial intelligence companies. 
The only people with money are the spies. And the spies insist that you commit treason before they'll listen to you. This is a very perverted way of collecting information. So what you end up with is a country team that essentially collects 20% at best of what can be known. And then because they're supposed to coordinate anything that goes out electronically, instead of coordinating electronic messages that can be shared with everybody, they send what they collect back in the pouch, in the physical pouch. And what that means is we spill 80% of what we collect. Because once it gets back in a hard copy volume to a desk officer that's overworked, that desk officer will either file it or throw it away. They will not exploit it. And this comes to the whole big data issue. Mary Meeker has said we, we process less than 1% of the big data that we collect. Well, the intelligence community and the US government are in the same position. We have spent the last 50 years developing collection systems. We haven't been developing processing and analytic systems. And I wrote a forward to a book on cyber OSINT by Stephen Arnold. And my forward outlines the failures of the intelligence of the information technology community over the last 50 years. We focus on big, expensive ways of collecting and storing information. We have not focused on ways to help people share information and make sense of information across all boundaries. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, fascinating. So basically, intelligence, as you describe it, is in a big mess. But let's perhaps define what do you mean by the term intelligence when you speak of it? What is it that you're referring to? I'm so glad you asked that because properly understood, intelligence means decision support. Data is a single element, whether it's a signal or an image or, or a text document, that's data. Information is data that has been integrated and had value added and is then broadcast generically. So, for example, a newspaper is information where all these journalists have taken all these sources of data, they've created these generic articles, and then they broadcast them. Intelligence is decision support that seeks to answer a very specific question by a very specific decider or decision group. When I was lecturing in Spain, one of the things I found was that when I asked people who is the client, they would say, oh, well, IBM is the client or the trade ministry is the client. I would say, no, the client is the specific human being that is going to be making a decision. If you aren't focused on what that specific human being needs to know, wants to know, and has to know, then you are nothing more than a classified newspaper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... We've, de we've described how intelligence says is fails today. We've dis defined it. Now let's take the next step. What is open source intelligence as, in, as being distinctive from secretive, classic, traditional intelligence? Well, one of the dirty little secrets of the secret intelligence community is that it doesn't really produce a lot of useful information. Uh, it doesn't actually produce decision support. I wrote an article for Counterpunch called Intelligence for the President and Everybody Else. 
The CIA, for example, does not produce useful decision support for the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Energy, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Housing and Health and Human Welfare. It doesn't do decision support for the rest of the government. And part of the problem, which is understandable, is they think that they're in the business of secrets for the president. And they believe that open source intelligence should be done by the customers themselves. And that's a mistake. Because the craft of intelligence, I've written 10 books. One of my favorite books is my second book, The New Craft of Intelligence, Personal, Public, and Political. More recently, I've written a book called Intelligence for Earth, Clarity, Diversity, Integrity, and Sustainability. And that's more or less my magnum opus. Uh, and it has over 1,500 links in it. So if you buy the Kindle version, you can then link to all of my book reviews and all of the other documents that I, that I support it with. Okay? The craft of intelligence is about having an objective professional group that is able to craft a requirement in partnership with the person being supported. That's requirements definition. Then they do collection management. They know who knows. They go out and they pull in all these sources from many different places. And this can also be done discreetly, whether you're doing it open source or closed source. Then they do processing, man-machine processing. And one of the problems that we have with machine processing is that I was ignored. In 1988, I told the General Defense Intelligence Program Committee that we had to have geospatial attributes on every datum or we would never be able to do machine speed visualization of all data all the time. We still don't have that, okay? So machine processing is actually severely limited for lack of these geospatial attributes on every data. And then you do man processing. Now, one of the problems that we have in, the, in the, both the intelligence community and the customer base is we have a mix of young people and political appointees not subject matter experts. I wrote an article for the uh, U.S. Uh, Institute for Peace in 1997, and we talked about the chasm, the gap between people with power and people with knowledge. That gap is now catastrophic. Decisions are made in Washington on the basis of who has paid for that decision, not on the basis of evidence or the public interest. So open source intelligence is the application of the craft of intelligence legally and ethically to create smart cities, smart nations, smart companies, smart citizens. It's about not being a sheep. <laughs> wow. Okay, not being a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, so, so okay, but so you are going to be giving the tools for people not to be sheep anymore, but then you have to to really kind of presume or assume that they would care to do that, wouldn't you? You know, one of the things I, I've decided that if I ever work for president and I'm offered my dream job, I want to be secretary of education, intelligence, and research together. One of the problems that we have is we have an educational system that trains sheep. <laughs> um, it basically requires kids to sit still for 18 years. That's a crime against humanity. 
it beats the creativity out of children. It tries to teach children to not question authority. It completely closes them off from the real world. <clears throat> I think we need to radically alter education and we need to make education a lifelong endeavor at the same time that we make meaningful work and creative artistic work, uh, including the arts and music and everything. I mean, music helps your brain. The arts help your brain. Um, so we have, we're at the end of the industrial era and the industrial era was about turning the population into obedient sheep and factory workers. And now we're getting into an era and part of the problem with the singularity approach is it doesn't understand the true costs. Okay, so your smartphone, for example, has at least five dead Chinese in it because the Chinese are required to dip their hands into a class A carcinogenic in order to build that smartphone. And what that means is that the Chinese that have touched and built your smartphone have essentially come down with leukemia. And they're now in a leukemia ward or they're dead and buried. So there's a human cost to the singularity that has not been properly evaluated. But that sounds a little bit too much to me. I mean, in the sense that I totally agree on the on the sort of cancerogenic end of things, but like Apple has sold on, on their own like hundreds of millions of phones. If we had five dead people for each phone, the whole Chinese population would have disappeared. All right, you just killed you just killed my math, but it's a very good idea. We need to run the number up to five. Um, look well, for an article, and in fact, I have it. I have a link in the. I have a link in my article for you called "The Human Cost um, of Computing," and so you'll see the data there on on Chinese coming down with leukemia. You're probably right. You're probably talking one Chinese for every thousand phones, or something like that. I don't know what the number is. The yeah. point is, people do come down with leukemia while building smartphones. And I agree on that point. I just uh, disagree. It's going to be five because I actually think that actually... You've got me. I'm wrong. I confess my sins. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, and I, I, one of the ones that I liked from those examples you had listed there was actually a very kind of obvious one in the sense that, for example, each uh, plastic uh, water bottle requires water equal to six or seven uh, water bottles. It's, it's insane. Right, to hold one water bottle worth of water. And now what's interesting is that in the last few years, several excellent processes have come up for recycling plastic. Um, but we're still not doing it. Uh, there is just this attitude of waste. Um, I think the day is going to come when trash dumps become gold mines. That's part of the singularity crowd, though. I like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the, the sort of the, the fact that there will be lots of uh, treasure buried there for recycling and for future entrepreneurs. At least that's one of the ideas anyway. That's uh, a good one. Will pan out in how and when uh, it's about to be seen, at least to the scale, to the exponential scale that we're hoping it will be. But I'm not seeing it yet. And I'm on your side uh, to the extent of waste and, and, and sort of, negative externalities that we see in the exponential production of many of these things. Well, let's talk exponential and scale. One of the reasons open source engineering is so important a concept 
is because open source everything engineering is also distributed, no barrier to entry engineering. So this means that anybody can recycle waste. Anybody can be an entrepreneur without having to get a lot of capital investment, without having to create large organizations and fixed plants and things like that. So the whole concept behind open source everything is that you have open money, open politics, open standards. You have open energy, open food, open water. All of this is a way of unleashing entrepreneurial capabilities among humans. Yeah, and, and I agree with you on, on that end. Uh, and, I, and I have huge problem, problems personally with the patent system as it is right now, etc. But, you know, the classic counter-argument to, to that is, is of course, uh, uh, the issue of innovation and, and, or the incentive to innovate. So how do you address that? Like, if we open source everything, people say no one would be innovating anymore because people don't have any incentive. I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's true. Now, I will grant you that there is still a lot of struggling about open source revenue models. Um, the way that yeah, I, I think I'm a good it, example of that myself. <laughs> no, I understand. And, and one, of the, one of the discussions I've had with the open source software guys is that essentially the open source software that they create is in theory a calling card. It's an example. It's a way of announcing themselves. And then in theory, they get paid for being part of a larger team that goes on to migrate and transform and so forth. There's actually a number of open source revenue models and what they all seem to focus on is that the money is not made in the foundation, but in the finish. It's made on the edges. Uh, I myself have not been in a normal job since the 1st of January, 2008. Um, I have been working on the edges, on the margins. Um, I mean, today I gave a briefing for $1,000, and it's, it's a very uncomfortable existence. It's a very... Um, Unpredictable and flexible. Yes, yes. Now, part of this larger concept is a basic income for everybody. In an open source world with an open government that is totally honest and transparent, you would no longer have the concentration of wealth. You would no longer have the tax avoidance of the very rich. You would, in fact, have more than enough wealth for everybody. If we had, if we had gone into Afghanistan and Iraq with all of the money that we spent destroying those two countries, and we had instead given everybody an annual salary and created two-story houses with swimming pools and water and electricity, and free internet for the kids, the Middle East would be a better place today. And we probably would only have spent half as much money and we would not have all these residual costs of the Fallujah uranium babies and the Iraqi military officers now running ISIS units in opposition. Um, so I talk about holistic analytics, true cost economics and open source engineering and all three need to be together. The problem that we have right now is that we are at the very end of the proprietary technology scientific financial paradigm. And that's the paradigm which says everybody's a slave and I own the intellectual property. 
and I can sell it and profit and become a millionaire. And do you now, think we are at the end of it? Because uh, international treaties, like for example, uh, TIPA, uh, most recently, which- TIPA is a crime against humanity, and anybody who voted for that should be impeached. Well, the Canadian government, believe it or not, is is kind of considering it now, and I'm I'm a huge uh, opponent of, of of them doing it. But that was negotiated in secret by the previous government, and I don't even understand. It was negotiated in secret. It has secret clauses. It is essentially a fascist treaty. It allows corporations to tell governments what to do, and sue them, and 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 force them to do stuff in their own country. Look, one of the one of the really cool things about the future is that absentee landlords have no standing. Uh, The day is going to come when all these big agricultural tracks are taken over by individual human beings. And there is going to be nothing that the big agricultural landowning companies can do. They're literally going to lose their land because it's not their land. I believe in the French and the Mexican system of community land ownership. This is the original indigenous Native American concept. So that a family can have a hundred year lease that is is transmittable forever to other family members, but it cannot sell the community land. It can use the community land that is assigned to it to make a profit, but it cannot do any harm to the land. So for example, no Monsanto GMO seeds, no pesticides, you know, we're, we're, there's a book called 1491 that says that the average Mayan head of household had to work 60 days a year in order to support a family of five. The rest of the time, they were doing arts and crafts and killing each other. <laughs> okay, so again, many, many things there. But so if Tipa is what it is, then it seems to me that that regime that you're saying is coming to an end, I think the way I see it is pretty strong and powerful and uh, perhaps ever-present and and overwhelmingly so even. It's an illusion. It's an illusion that has been carefully crafted using movies and the media and the educational system. There's a wonderful cartoon of the 99% standing on a plank And the other end of the plank is out over the Grand Canyon. And the 1% is standing on the end of the plank that is out over the Grand Canyon. And on the 99% side, one of the 99%ers turns to the other 99%ers. He says, why are we standing on this plank? (laughs) That day is coming. Well, I, I sure hope so. But then the concern is, of course, how does that look like? Because there's many ways, shapes, and forms that that, that 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 can come at. And there's many alternative visions to the world that that can come from. And I think the answer to that, I've, I've, read, a, I've read a number of books on self-determination and secession. Quebec, for example, I believe will be its own country within five to ten years. Catalan will be its own country within five to 10 years. Scotland will be its own country. Hawaii will be its own country within five to 10 years. There are 5,000 secessionist movements around the world. There are 27 secessionist movements in the United States. 
Vermont, Alaska, Texas, Hawaii, and a portion of California, and also Oregon and, and Washington, among others, Long Island. New York City has talked about leaving the state of New York. But my point is, I think eventually we're going to get to a world in which diversity is appreciated again. We have centralized too much. I think we call that Canada, where I come from. But anyway, that's, of course, a partial point of view. And I, I don't see the... I see what you're saying, and I agree with most of it. The Quebec example, I kind of tend to disagree with because most of the young people that I talk to today from Quebec uh, are not concerned uh, with that issue as, as one of the major issues of our time. They're more concerned with the ecology, with the economy, with security, with uh, their future job prospects, with things like that. Uh, and, and, and probably you know, Quebec... As, as a sovereign state is not probably even in the top 10 and certainly not in the top five, as far as I can tell. Uh, but, but the other ones, maybe I see that more in Catalonia, for example, uh, of what you're talking about. And, and we see uh, lots of recent uh, signs of it. I don't see those signs in Canada per se. Well, I, I guess what I want to say to you, there's an excellent book by, by a former professor of mine, Charles Bednar, called Transforming the Dream. And what he, what he talks about, essentially, is that the industrial era paradigm has now reached the end of its supportable life. We're going to see increasing collapses. I'm looking for an economic collapse in the United States in the next year. I'm looking for a collapse in Europe. Uh, this whole, I mean, we've had 2 million illegal immigrants go to Europe in the last two years. 2 million. Okay. So what's happening now is that governments are no longer legitimate in the eyes of a majority. And you have concentrated wealth. And I, I, I um, don't have it in my article for you, but I can certainly share it with you. The most popular graph on my website is the preconditions of revolution graphic because it outlines all of the things that can go wrong in political, legal, socioeconomic, ideocultural, techno-demographic, and natural geographic terms. And what's happening right now in the West is all of those conditions are present. Do you think that the situation in Europe and the United States and Canada is all the same? Because I see... No, it's, they're all different. Right. That's how I see it. I, I see that first coming probably in the United States, if, if anywhere. Uh, and secondly, is that necessarily a good thing or not? Because well, you know, going back to your, your comment about nature being nasty and brutish. Um, if the United States government is so stupid as to not focus on the well-being of its population then all of the chaos that occurs in the United States has been brought on by the U.S. government. And what's going to happen is the states are going to devolve. They're going to begin nullifying federal regulations. They're going to be ending federal ownership of land. The federal government was intended to be an administrative convenience. It's the United States of America, not the United People of America. It was the states that created the federal government. And I believe the future is going to eventually see the federal government forbidden from owning land or taxing citizens directly. 
and the states will be providing apportioned funding for services of common concern. And I expect the U.S. military to be cut back, not quite to Canada's scale, but I expect, I expect some major, major cuts in, in how we spend money. I expect an end to borrowing. I expect a balanced budget. Um, we're, I mean, we've literally been living a criminal dream. Okay, but to me, what you're saying sounds like, uh, I mean, from, from a former political scientist as I am, the definition of a state is, is that body which has the, the monopoly over the organized means of violence in a certain geographical... Area. Well, McIver, uh, McIver wrote a wonderful book, The Origin of the State, and, and he, he talks about a number of functions, not just the, the uh, ownership of violence. Chris Hedges wrote a book recently on wages of rebellion. And of course, uh, uh, Russell Brand has written a wonderful book on revolution. Revolutions happen when three the things comedian come. Russell Brand? What? The comedian Russell Brand? Yes. Yes. He wrote a book that I reviewed on revolution. I like it very much. Um, three things are coming together. The first is concentrated wealth together with unemployment that is no less than 23% in the United States today. In some groups, it's 40%. Uh, single moms with a kid, people of color, young people with new college degrees, and older guys like myself, it's 40% unemployment. Okay, so concentrate. Why do official statistics are so different? Because the government lies. Government doesn't count everybody that's given up looking for work. It doesn't count people that are holding three part-time jobs with no benefits. It's literally a theater. I mean, Chris Hedges wrote a wonderful book called Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle. More recently, he's, book, he's, he's written a book called Wages of Rebellion, which contains the third condition for revolution. The first two are concentration of wealth and illegitimate government in the eyes of the people. The third is when the military and law enforcement stop enforcing the law and no longer support the elites in their control of the population. We're very close to that point. But to me, that, that, that sounds like a very concerning thing uh, still, because to me, that sounds like, like, a, you know, like a civil war. I mean, one of the, 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 the French uh, uh, revolutionaries, I can't remember who it was, but he said, revolution is a bloodthirsty monster that once let out, you cannot easily put back in. It's course, true, but... All of them got guillotinized in the end. Well, let me point out to you the difference between a civil war and a war of secession. A civil war is one in which you're trying to become the owner of the state and have a monopoly on violence and be in control of everything. A war of secession is much easier to win. A war of secession says, do what you want, I'm out of here. You no longer have authority in my state. Take the state of Texas, for example. That is a state that could very, very easily kick the federal government out, and there is absolutely nothing Washington can do about that. Really? But Washington commandeers the army. Texas just has some militia. The Texas has the Texan National Guard. And I think you will find that two out of three U.S. soldiers will not fire on U.S. citizens. I hope so, but I'm not sure about that. Because 
if you look at the 1960s, there was this uh, famous case. I forget which university was it at when the Kent State, right? And, and people got killed, and those were protesters, and many of one person got killed, and it created national outrage. Look, the times have changed. I mean, the the videotaping of Rodney King. Look how many black people get shot all the time. And what is happening now is that the police are now under scrutiny. I mean, we, the police killed 140 people in March of last year. Um, what's happening is that the internet is making cell phone cameras a major resource for citizens. And it is helping share outrage. Where I think we're going, and I'm, I'm actually optimistic because, for example, Lady Lynn Rothschild ran a conference on inclusive capitalism. That's code for stop the pitchforks. There are Silicon Valley billionaires who are talking about redemptive capitalism. That's code for stop the pitchforks. Yeah, Morris, Tony Blair used to call that also capitalism with a human face and so on. Or compassionate capitalism. Frankly, yeah. I think capitalism is a bad term that should be expunged because laborism is the human side of it. I think we need to reorient our economies to people and communities. And we need to get away from these, these uh, huge supply chains that have absolutely no respect for true costs. If you look at a single, it took one of my guys a whole year to identify the true costs of a single cotton t-shirt. And I include that in your article, in the article that I did for you. Yes. I mean, a single cotton T-shirt has X gallons of water and all this fuel and toxins and child labor. Um, we need to start doing more localized manufacturing. I mean, Buckminster Fuller was the first person to say that most people's jobs are not worth the petrol they use to get <laughs> to and from work. That's a very profound observation. I, I would agree with like... Uh... A couple of street blocks in New York City and here in Toronto, we call it uh, Bay Street, by the way. We don't call it Wall Street. We call it Bay Street. I would agree with that mostly, but 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 I don't know. Uh, especially for the Texan example, go going back again to it, I mean, I don't see Texas going to laborism anytime soon myself. I see Texas, even if it succeeds, being very kind of laissez-faire, hardcore, uh, Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, capitalist. Laissez-faire is the key term. Live and let live. But laissez-faire is kind of the, the libertarian, pro-capitalist moniker, isn't it? Yeah, and one of the concerns, I, I was going to run as a libertarian candidate for president, but it became clear that they didn't want me. One of the problems with libertarians is that they don't understand communitarianism. They're so, it sounds like communism to them. Well, they're so individual that they think that an individual who is owning land, for example, at the beginning of a river has the right to crap in that river and never mind the people downstream. <laughs> so you have to have a community spirit in which you have holistic analytics and true cost economics, and everybody understands 
what the costs and the benefits are for having civilized codes of behavior. Okay, let's move on our conversation here to um, a couple of examples in a couple of term, terms that you use uh, in your book that are important, I believe. So uh, let me just bring in a couple of uh, criticism or critical points of view. Um, so if we're going open source everything, for example, one of the things that we'll be open sourcing is, as you said, engineering, software engineering, all of software, et cetera, et cetera. So let me ask you first, are you a Linux user yourself? No, but my next computer is going to be an open source computer that only runs one program at a time with no Microsoft. I still have a computer that's seven years old. So I'm still using my company computer. And what OS is it running? I, it's uh, Microsoft. It's Windows. Yeah, it, which is horrible. In fact, I just found out if I, if I deleted all the Windows Live stuff, my computer runs better. But one of, the, one, of the, one of the shortfalls that we've had in recent years is we haven't had a proper open source laptop. Now there are a couple. Uh, there's a company, a Penguin company, that builds an open source laptop. There's another company that just came out, and they build a laptop in which they advertise that every single software and hardware has no backdoors. Yeah, and those are all Linux-based. I mean, no, what I'm sorry. What I meant is they have no messaging. They have none of this unauthorized stuff that goes on in background. One of the things that infuriates me about Microsoft is all of the processes that are running uh, without control when all I want to do is type a memo. That's the only thing I want running, not all that other stuff. But no, I'm not a coder. I am more of a meta guy. Yes, yes, clearly. But so... so Anyway, so you're leaning towards Linux, but you're, you're not quite there yet. Because the reason is that I ask this is, or one of the reasons anyway, was that, uh, I don't know, you, you've read a lot, a lot of books. Have you read uh, Jaron Lanier's uh, I'm Not a Gadget? And then I, I forget what his latest book is. I, I like him very much. Uh, he has a chapter in a book that I published called Collective Intelligence Creating a Prosperous World at Peace. Um, I know him and I like him. He's a big opponent of open source software. He says in his book that all of the uh, innovation, historically speaking, has happened in for-profit software and uh, the open source community at best has always been just uh, following behind and kind of implementing uh, the innovation that has been done by originally... Well, I, I would disagree with him, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you why. Time is the one strategic variable that cannot be bought and cannot be replaced. Time really matters. And right now, all of the proprietary technology, if we wanted to transfer it to the 5 billion poor, it's unaffordable. It's not interoperable, and it will not scale. You think open source can do that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And in fact, I've proposed an open source technologies agency uh, in a memorandum, which I link in this article that, that I've given you. And um, why would it be able to accomplish such scaling for 5 billion people, whereas uh, uh, the alternatives from be it Microsoft or be it Apple will not? Because it's open because it's, it's adaptable, because it's transparent, 
because it will essentially harness the distributed intelligence of the five billion poor. See, part of the problem with, with proprietary technology is it's not teaching people how to fish, it's giving them a closed program. It's giving them a closed box. If you give them an open box, they will invent new things with it. Uh, and I don't have all the answers. But what I do know with certainty is that what we're doing now is not working and it's not scalable. Now, I wrote a white paper for the United Nations called Beyond Data Monitoring, and that's also linked in this article that I've done for you. And I make the point that the current plan to achieve the sustainability development goals is ridiculous. Not only are the donor promises not going to materialize, but 80 to 90% of the money is then consumed by United Nations and intermediate organizations. Less than 10% of the money gets to the village level. Now, if you combine an open source everything approach together with what Ghani from Afghanistan has recommended, which is electronic bank accounts at the village level, then you can put 100% of the money to the village level and bypass all these intermediaries that are buying themselves first-class tickets around the world. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point, per se. I think the whole idea of an open-source world is you move away from the fenced commons. I mean, proprietary technology is a way of fencing the commons, and it is too restrictive for the kind of scale that we need to achieve in the next 10 years. You see, I agree with you entirely on, on the theoretical end of things. And, and I've been a, always a strong sympathizer to open source software. Yet I've been using Microsoft myself. And the last time I did actually a, a deeper analysis on uh, the potential for me migrating to Linux was maybe a couple of years ago. And at the time, there were all kinds of issues with drivers for video cards and and, uh, you know, video codecs, which are, of course, uh, pri uh, proprietary. Uh, and, you know, I'm a blogger and a podcaster, so I need to be able to edit my audio and or video for things like But that. imagine if you had an open source alternative for every single one of those. Yes, that will be fantastic. But, but, but there were problems because, of course, uh, the, the, the companies are creating those modes, those barriers, those impediments. In 1994, we talked about Microsoft and how it mutates and migrates its, app, uh, its application program interfaces. I mean, Microsoft has done some great things, but it has set information technology back 20 years because it has retarded the ability to create sense-making programs and data management programs and all these other things. Microsoft basically said, "Just this is just like Facebook. Facebook is making the same mistake with Facebook Basic. Microsoft is saying, screw you, we're going to go five miles an hour and you better like it. And that's what Facebook is trying to do to India. Okay, that's insane. We ought to put Facebook and Google and Microsoft out of business. And Cisco and Oracle. But the, the Indians turned them down, I think, didn't they? Yes, which is good, which is very good. Yeah, that was quite impressive. And, and I think they're going, and even, even in places like uh, certain uh, municipal cities in Germany, I noticed in the last couple of years, they did migrate 
from Microsoft Office uh, administrative systems to Linux, by the way. It's not just them. The, Nor the Norwegians, the Chinese, a whole bunch of people have said, we should not require our citizens to buy a proprietary product in order to read government information. And that comes back to my vision for open access, open data, requires open software, open hardware. It also requires open spectrum. Wi-Fi should be free. Or this new thing, Li-Fi, with the light bulbs. It's wonderful. Tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what you call the panarchy uh, model. Can you unpack that for us? The what? Panarchy. Oh, panarchy. Well, that's that's more that's more Mikel Bowen's thing. But you know, panarchy is essentially informed self-governance. It's extreme democracy. It's everybody working together and having voice and vote on any issue that they wish. Let's uh, uh, pick up the pace then and then let's talk about uh, the importance of what you call ethics and integrity. Oh, I love that question. Um, there's a guy named Robert James Beckett in the United Kingdom. And uh, you can look him up on my website, Phi Beta Iota, but he talks about how we're moving from the age of information into the age of virtue. I agree with that. In their book, The Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Durant, who wrote the 11-volume Story of Civilization, say that morality is a strategic asset of incalculable value. Okay? Ethics is about the truth and transparency and trust. Ethics is how a civilization hands on the lessons of history from one generation to the next. Ethics is the cultural code for getting the most out of any group in any situation with the least amount of damage and the least amount of waste. So ethics is an operating system. <laughs> I love that actually. Ethics is an operating system. I haven't yes. seen that before. Hmm. I like that very much. Interesting. That that I would have to ponder on that and maybe I'll steal it from you since you drew that out of me. That is the first time I have ever said that. Awesome. Excellent. So perhaps I'm contributing a little bit, which is ethics is an operating system. You have my permission to take it. Oh, I'll steal it for sure, but you, but you should... No, it's open source. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because it's open source, it wouldn't be a problem. But uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, since we are on that topic, the importance also of bloggers like me. Because you see, I'm a blogger and people have uh, kind of often the misconception that it's, uh, I blog about technology, but I actually don't blog about technology. Technology is just the context. I actually blog about ethics. Look, uh, I, was the, I was the opening speaker at Hackers on Planet Earth in 1994. And in my speech, I said that hackers were the only people who had the combination of intelligence and integrity to identify deficiencies in communications and computing systems that the companies themselves were either unaware of or trying to hide. And I said that hackers have a social responsibility to reveal those vulnerabilities. And my proposed approach to them was report the vulnerabilities to the company and give them 30 days to fix it. 
and at the end of 30 days, announce it publicly. So since you're mentioning that social responsibility, that means that you actually would be seemingly in support of people such as, for example, Julian Assange or even Edward Snowden. Yes. And, and let me point out, I think Edward Snowden is a CIA operation uh, approved by the White House. That kind of blows my mind now. Well, we could talk about that. Look, Snowden was a nobody. He went from being a security guard to being a CIA technical specialist to being placed by Booz Allen in Hawaii as a contractor. Uh, Snowden, and I've met his parents. I like his parents very much. They're loyal, patriotic Americans. Snowden has all the signs of being a, a classic operation. And our State Department is stupid but they're not so stupid as to take Snowden's passport away so that he has to stay in Russia unless we want him to stay in Russia. That's an interesting point. Okay, well, that's, that's another point I need to... Look, the bottom line is everyone has different motivations. Um, I like to quote a CEO in New York, uh, Bob Seelert from Saatchi and Saatchi Worldwide. He says... Until you get the truth on the table, no matter how ugly it is, you're not in a position to deal with it. And one of the problems that we have with Western governments and Western banks and Western corporations is that they lie as a persistent characteristic of how they do business. Uh, The war in Iraq was based on 935 now documented lies. There's a book by that title, 935 Lies. And what it actually talks about is is the loss of ethics in politics. In theory, and I wrote a wonderful post many years ago that was featured in a profile in which I talked about how politics and intelligence are, in theory, the highest forms of serving the public, but only when they are both ethical. I agree with you completely on that point, too. Okay. So what we have, Matt Tabby has written a book called Griftopia. And on page 32, he has a quote, and my summary of that book is at Amazon, in which he says that what we have now in the United States is a state of Griftopia in which political crime and financial crime have merged. The reason political crime and financial crime have merged is because the citizens have abdicated their responsibility for paying attention. Now, when I spoke at Nomdex in 2007, this is Nomdex as a conference of bloggers, I suggested to them that they attach themselves like leeches to individual corporations and individual issues and that they become citizen intelligence minutemen, which is a phrase that Alessandro Politi coined in 1992 when he attended my first conference on open source solutions. So in the ideal, every citizen should be a citizen intelligence professional who is focused with laser-like intensity so that they become the world's top expert on X, Y, or Z, and nothing escapes their notice. I want to do for open source what Linux Torvalds did for Linux. In other words, I want all the poverty authors and all the citizens observing poverty to be part of one massive global brain poverty slice 
The same thing for infectious disease, the same thing for environmental degradation, uh, the same thing for potholes. I mean, there are now wonderful apps where a citizen can tap their phone and report a pothole. I want to create the world brain. And in fact, I have an essay on saving civilization. Well, tell us a little more about what the concept of that world brain look, looks like. Well, I own three of the URLs, worldbrain.net.org and .com. Uh, and I have a graphic uh, on the world brain. Basically, worldbrain.net should be permanent identities that also include anonymity and privacy and rights and security. And worldbrain.org should be like the global library that's free to everybody. Uh, worldbrain.edu should be global education, one cell call at a time. So I don't care what it is you want to know, you should be able to get it in a five-minute video that is directly related to the moment of time. And then worldbrain.com would actually be a profit-making activity in which communities would agree to crowdfund very specific developments. Well, I want to tell your, your listeners, if they go to tinyurl.com forward slash steel dash future, and I think I have this link in the article that I wrote for you, yeah. but steel dash future as a tiny URL has all of my latest work, including the Saving Civilization essay. And that calls for a school of future-oriented hybrid governance. It calls for a multinational decision support center so that the UN will stop making decisions based on American lies. It calls for an open source technologies agency. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, it calls for a United Nations open source decision support information network. Eventually, we should be able to connect all information in all languages all the time. But let me ask you, all of those things so far that you said, like open source intelligence, world brain, connecting everything, all the knowledge in all the languages all the time, all those things to me sound like Google, 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 Google. No, you know, I, I, uh, I really like and admire Vince Cerf. He and I met in 1992 when I was attending the annual Internet Society conferences. And I bought Vince sushi before he went to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I said, Vince, for God's sakes, get Google to give us some tools for making sense. And I'm sorry to say that hasn't happened. Now, you know, are you aware Google started basically on the basis of, of three crimes? Uh, Google stole the Yahoo search engine. I don't know about that. Yes, they they have recently paid $1 billion as a quit claim. So Google stole the Yahoo search engine and then modified it to become Google. They received funding from the CIA Office of Research and Development. And they were able to pick up all of the Alta Vista employees that Hewlett Packard closed down. Those are the three things that created Google. And my friend uh, Stephen Arnold has written three books about Google, the Google Trilogy. Google, in my view, has done some really excellent things, but Google is also a fraud. It hasn't actually made money. It's operating on shareholder cash. Okay, Google is driven by search engine 
advertising revenue. And that is collapsing. I think Google is gone. And frankly, I think Facebook is gone at some point. If India really, really wanted to create a smart nation and smart cities, they should be harnessing all their universities to create the anti-Google and the anti-Facebook. And then on top of it, put the tools that I've identified, 18 different tools. Well, I can sympathize with sort of the desire to have alternatives to Google and Facebook uh, in, and perhaps in sort of the open source realm of uh, that's that's great. I just don't see the end of neither Google nor Facebook anytime soon. I think. Well, I see the end of IBM. You know, I mean, this is going to happen inevitably. Uh, Google and Facebook surfed the wave perfectly. They're utterly brilliant. And I don't begrudge them for a moment. They're great success. But they're not good enough. And that's my bottom line. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this then. Um, first of all, just a, a curious question. How in the world are, have you managed to write 1,700 book reviews? Like, I read a lot of books myself. <clears throat> I'm probably, I don't know, in the five to seven, 800 range, maybe. Right. Uh, let me say, first off, when, when Google, I mean, when Amazon started the review system, I had already written two books and each of those two books had 150 annotated bibliographic entries. So I had a total of 300 mini book reviews, one paragraph. I loaded all of those to Amazon on the 4th of April, 2000. And I was instantly a top 1,500 reviewer because it had just started. So that's 300 reviews right there. Then I was invited to speak to a parliament in Europe. I can't remember, the French parliament, the German parliament, whatever. And I was very intimidated. So I read 50 books to get ready for this mission. And I wrote short reviews of each of those 50 books, and I loaded that. So now we're at 350. Then I kind of got hooked. And buying books is a business expense. So it, uh, there was a time when I was spending $5,000 a year on books. Uh, and it basically boiled down to my reading one or two books a week. Now, I read books in three ways. Uh, I glance through them, and if I don't like them at all, I just set them aside and I don't review them. Some books I will read the, the introduction, the conclusion, and maybe one or two chapters in the table of contents and the index. And, the, and then some books I will start with the index and then read all of the end notes, and then read the entire book word for word. So out of the 2,100 or so book reviews that I have now, I would say I've read every word in at least half of them. Uh, and the others are partial things. Because at my level, with what I know, you can pick up a book, and you can see very quickly, does this book make an original contribution or is this just regurgitating stuff or, or whatever? And so my reviews do two things. They summarize the book and they provide 10 links, which is the maximum allowed by Amazon. So I've actually created an ecology, a nonfiction ecology of 98 linked categories of books. And if you go to phibetaiota.net, at the top, you'll see the review page. 
And then within that review page, I have a whole series of lists of book reviews. Like I have a long uh, list, list of lists of books about the future and lists of lists of books about the past. I have one list of 300 books on secret intelligence. I have another list of books on self-determination and secession um, and, and so forth. Uh, so I would certainly say, take a look at the review page uh, where I also have essays on leadership and education and democracy lost. And I'll link to your homepage, Robert, but unfortunately time is advancing here. So I'm going to have to bring our conversation to an end, but let me ask you, what's the best place for our viewers and listeners to find more about you and your work? Well, I would say the blog, which has no advertising and offers a free subscription that has over 19,000 posts from over 800 contributors, 80 of which are active now. And that is phibetaiota.net. Very good. Okay, and I'll link to it. Uh, and then the final question that I always ask of my guests on my show is this. How do we wrap, out, wrap up our conversation? We kind of jumped all over space and time and, and subject matters and, and went all kinds of... Well, you're going to be publishing an article uh, that I have written for you especially. Uh, and what I would say is, let's keep the conversation going. Let's keep the conversation going. Interesting. Okay, I like that. All right. And of course, by the time this uh, interview gets published, uh, I would have already published the article. So, Robert Steele, thank you very much for being with us tonight. It's an honor. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.